So here we go, Sermon on the Mount. This is a really important passage of Scripture. Um, that's why we took the time last week to do a sort of intro. Um, I won't repeat all of last week's sermon, but just by the way of recap, we got through the first four chapters of Matthew. His ministry has just begun. And, and, and really the important point to take going in is that the message of John the Baptist was very simple. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is within your reach. It's here. You can grab it. The kingdom is right here. But if you want to get into the kingdom, you have to repent. You have to repent. Now, this immediately put itself as a statement that was antagonist towards the Pharisees. Pharisees had long since taught that all of Israel had a share of the kingdom to come. And repentance is a thorn in the flesh for organized religion in many, many different forms. Even in the church today, we've had many generations of the church in this country where people have edged ever more to an easier and easier form of faith. Repentance has sort of almost become a afterthought, something that's kind of thrown in, oh yeah, there's repentance, you know, as well, sort of thing, without it being the main message. And there are many, many, many people who consider themselves Christians because they have intellectually agreed with certain elements of Christian faith, but they've never repented. They've never turned from their lives. They've never let go of their life and turned and given all to Christ to bow before him, to find refuge in him, to trust in him and nothing else. And so repentance was antagonistic to the Pharisees, just like it is to so much of the church today. And the message of John the Baptist is the message that Jesus then reiterated. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we've said so many times, and we're going to continue to say, because it's something that's neglected and forgotten by the church today, and that is that when it, the, the kingdom was offered, it wasn't like a sower sowing his seeds, like in chapter 13. It wasn't like a, a, a seed that becomes a mustard tree, you know, mustard seed that becomes this great big tree, big, great bush. That's not there until chapter 13. The kingdom that was being offered now is the only kingdom, the only kingdom that the Jews had ever known about. A promise of a physical kingdom upon the earth where the Messiah would come and physically reign from Jerusalem over the entirety of the earth. That the Jews would have a special place in this kingdom, but all nations would come and worship their Messiah. And the righteousness and the glory of God would cover the earth. That's what they're expecting. And Jesus says, what you have waited for as a nation... For centuries and centuries and centuries is now there. You've just got to reach out and take it. And how do you reach out and take it? You have to repent. That's the message. So when we came to the end of chapter 4, Jesus verse 23 in this summary statement, going through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus went to synagogues, to the Jewish people, and he taught. 
And when he was teaching there, he preached the gospel, which as most of us know means good news, of the kingdom. So the kingdom's here. The kingdom is now within reach. This is really good news. But you have to repent. And as I said last time, you get this far into Matthew, and at this point you're thinking, man, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in those synagogues. I wish that I could hear the sort of thing that Jesus was teaching. What does he mean by repentance? What does repentance look like? How do I know if I'm truly repentant? And what about this kingdom that we're going to have that's available? Oh, I wish I could hear what Jesus was saying. And as if Matthew hears you in advance, he now gives us this teaching of Jesus where we are going to have that basic message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and we're going to have that expounded for us in a multitude of different ways. So chapter 5 and verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we covered this first verse last week. Just to reiterate, there are crowds. The crowds were first mentioned in chapter 4, verse 25. The crowds become a significant player in Matthew's gospel. They are going to be the ones who follow him. They're going to be the ones who, who uh, exalt him. And they're going to be the ones who cry for him to be crucified. They play a significant role in Matthew's gospel. And these crowds have gathered now. He's doing all of his healing and this teaching and they want to hear what he's got to say. And he goes up on the mountain. Now the mountains in the ancient world were the um, the dwelling place of the gods. If you wanted to meet with God, you went up a mountain. You worship false gods, go up a mountain. Worship the true God, go up a mountain. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but there's elements of truth there. When the Tower of Babel was made, it was almost like a, a man-made mountain. They were trying to get to the gods. Not literally get to heaven in the sense of, let's see if we can reach space, you know, but get to heaven in the sense of getting to the divine realm. And, you know, where where did Moses get the, the, uh, the law, the Mosaic law? He went up Mount Sinai. And so Jesus, who is, as we've already seen in Matthew's gospel, the new Moses, is going up the mountain. Moses, remember, was not only the one who was given the law and passed it on to Israel, he was also Israel's redeemer. He was the one that led them through the trials of the plagues and led them out from Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness and led them to the brink of the promised land. He was their redeemer. Jesus is also, as the new Moses, both lawgiver and redeemer. And because, as we said last time, Jesus is going to explain what the law of Moses meant, and we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, it is appropriate that this new Moses goes up the mountain to teach. And he sits down. As I said last time, that's what rabbis did when they began to teach. We do it the other way around. I stand up to teach. They sat down. And his disciples came to him. This is something that he's teaching those who are in some way, shape or form disciples. Now obviously there's a mixture of a crowd here, but Matthew's emphasizing the disciples. Why? Because this is what his disciples needed to know. You want to follow Jesus? What are you going to do? You've got to repent. 
Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he's the king who's going to establish the kingdom. And so you've got to trust in that. And what does that look like to be a follower of Jesus who is now distinct from Pharisaic Judaism, who is now going to be a repenter, who is turning from that system of Judaism that currently existed, turning from their life of sin. What does that look like? The disciples are about to find out. Now, he opens his mouth and began to teach them. Now, here we need to take a little look. It sounds redundant, doesn't it? He opened his mouth and began to teach. Well, how else are you going to teach? I mean, is it a ventriloquist show? You know? You know? Of course he opens his mouth. So if Matthew's telling us this, this can't be redundant. God, the Bible writers are speaking, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wasted here. What's interesting is that after the Jews reject Jesus and the nature of the kingdom changes, he then begins to teach in parables. And you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 13, 35, he quotes from uh, Psalm 78, which says, I will open my mouth in parables. And because we have a repetition of opening the mouth, and because he quotes Psalm 78 specifically, it seems to me that Matthew here ahead of time is pointing us to Psalm 78. So why don't we just turn there briefly. We won't spend a long time there. Regulars will know that we love to uh, make sure we unravel all the Old Testament allusions and quotations and understand why they're being pointed to. Psalm 78, if you're in a pew Bible, it's 795. That will get you there more quickly. Psalm 78 starts this way. Give ear, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Listen, is what he's saying. Pay attention to what I'm going to say and to the instruction that I'm giving. Verse 2, here you go. I will open my mouth. That's what's being referenced here in, um, in Matthew 5. I will open my mouth in a parable. Clearly this is more fulfilled in Matthew 13. I will pour forth dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have recounted to us. In other words, there are things here that were spoken previously, which had previously been heard and known. And that have been passed down from the previous generations. We will not conceal them from our children, verse 4. Recount to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh, that his strength and his wondrous deeds that he has done. In other words, we're going to pass them down to our children as well. We've been taught from generations before, and we're going to teach the generations to come. Now, if that doesn't already make you think of Mosaic law and Deuteronomy 6, and this emphasis upon passing the law to subsequent generations, it's given to us in verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and set a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. And if you turn the page, we have a very long psalm that goes through Israel's history, that speaks of their rejection, that speaks of God punishing them. But at the end of the psalm, right, right at the end, Psalm uh, 78 verse 65, then the Lord awoke as if from sleep, as if he were a warrior overcome by wine. 
He struck his adversaries backwards. He put them on everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. There comes a point in time where God, who seems distant to Israel because of their sin, shows up through the tribe of Judah, who has been promised kingship, builds a sanctuary, he chooses David, and so David becomes not a shepherd to sheep, verse 70, but a shepherd to Israel, verse 71, and following. So all of this is to say, Psalm 78 gives us a history of Israel that from the perspective of the psalmist, Asaph, ends when David comes and Israel turned back to the law, the king is established and what have you. But, as we always see in the Psalms, whenever David is there in our, in our view, in our vision, there's two Davids in view. There is David literally and his physical descendant Solomon, and then there is the other son of David, the Messiah King, who's going to have the throne of David and rule and reign forever. But all of this begins, well, let's, if we work backwards, the coming of the Davidic shepherd comes when Yahweh awakes and turns back to his people who have neglected him and turned away from him because they, verse 10, refused to walk in his law. And so the psalm began with saying, listen to my words, keep the law. Now, all of that is to say, in a very brief summary, I think the reason that in Matthew 5, if you want to turn back there for a moment, that Jesus, or Matthew rather, says that Jesus opened his mouth, is is not redundant. He's not just throwing around, wasting empty words. He's pointing us to Psalm 78, because Psalm 78 is speaking about the importance of keeping the law, which is what Jesus is about to teach. The other passage that is so crucial as we now come... I haven't even got to the word blessed yet. We're getting there in a minute. The other passage that is so crucial is the one that George read for us this morning. So if you turn back to Psalm... uh, Sorry, to Isaiah 61. Again, if you're in your pew Bibles, that's page 1001. Let's get you there nice and quickly. It's a very well-known passage. It's a very well-known passage for a few reasons. I mean, it has a lot of value to the Jews. They always held this particular chapter of Isaiah in very high esteem. If you look at the last section of Isaiah, 55 to 66, it forms a sort of chiastic structure, and right at the middle, at the center of this last section, is Isaiah 61. So it's always been important. Most of us know it better, because Jesus quotes it in Luke. Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up in the... Uh, rather, he sits down to teach in the synagogue. Everyone goes quiet. What's he going to say? And he reads, oh, sorry, he stands up to teach, the, to read this, and then he sits down to teach. And everyone pays attention to him. And he reads out this, this passage. The spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners and to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. Now at that point, Jesus stops and he sits down to teach. And everybody watches him. And why are they particularly watching him right now? Because he's done something very strange. 
In the synagogue, when they read the scriptures, they always read a minimum of three verses. Jesus has only read one and a half. One verse and a little bit of the next verse. And he sits down to teach and he says this. Today, this is fulfilled in your midst. Why did he stop early? Because the verse continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus has come to bring good news. We know that the Spirit of the Lord's upon him. We know that he's anointed because we saw that in Matthew 3 and we saw that at the baptism of Jesus. He's come to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the release of captives, freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. That's what he's doing. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then what has to happen following is there's going to be vengeance. And then the rest of the chapter goes on to speak of the establishing of the kingdom. And I want you to notice a few things. There will be comfort to those who mourn. The day of vengeance is going to produce much suffering and much mourning. But there will be comfort. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may, he may show forth his beautiful glory. And, and the, the chapter goes on from there to speak about the establishing of the kingdom. And I want you to take particular note in verse 8. I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. In truth, I will give them their recompense and cut an everlasting covenant with them. The Jews will have an everlasting covenant, a new covenant that he's going to cut with them, which Isaiah talks about. Jeremiah goes on to speak of in more detail, and then Ezekiel after him in more detail again. But there is this promise of the kingdom, of a righteous kingdom, look at the end of verse 11, that will eventually branch out before all the nations. This is the promised kingdom of the Old Testament. Now, why do we read that now? Because there's no quotations uh, in Matthew 5, but I want you to just look at the parallels. Mourning and comfort are obvious. They are there. The concept of good news that was mentioned at the end of chapter 4 is there. The giving of the Spirit that we saw in chapter 3 is there. And the constant theme of this chapter, mentioned multiple times, is the idea of righteousness. In other words, there are probably five, six, seven things linking Isaiah 61 to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is speaking of the same kingdom that Isaiah 61 is talking about. Okay? Now here's a good question. I know it's a good question because my wife asked me this last week. So it's a good question. Okay? Here was the question. Why is it, if this is Old Testament theology, which it is, hence me showing you in Isaiah 61, why doesn't Jesus just quote some of the Old Testament? Matthew does that everywhere. Why is he not particularly pointing us to any particular verses in the Old Testament? I think the answer is, is that Jesus is constructing his own way of saying it 
in a way that is both memorable, but also is really giving us the answer to the question that we had, what does this repentance look like? So now we come to the Beatitudes, and as we kind of come in, I just want to swiftly go through, and I want to show you these two columns. There is, many of you have done a lot of work in the Psalms with me over the years, there is in the Psalms something we call Hebrew poetic parallelism. Now, with Hebrew poetic parallelism, you have in the Psalms this kind of poetry, and there'll be these statements that are very much the same. They're they're parallel statements. They will say something and then say something else that is almost synonymous. The difference is very slight, but normally that difference, though slight, is still quite significant. And Jesus is essentially creating that here. You'll notice most of your Bibles that the verse 3 now is indented a little bit in a way that it isn't come verse 11. It's, it's almost poetic in its nature. And so Jesus is essentially giving us synonymous statements where the differences are slight and subtle but significant. But what he is doing in these eight statements... And I did mean eight. I didn't get that wrong. I'm ignoring the last blessed of verse 11 for good reason. But in these eight statements, what he's doing is he's telling us what repentance looks like that gets us into the kingdom. The first one we have is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is simple. He starts us off with in a sense, with one that's easy for us to see what he's doing in this section. Because what is it that we want to know? We want an explanation of the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? So who gets to go in the kingdom? Those who repent. If you don't repent, do you get to go in the kingdom? No, because you have to repent to go into the kingdom. Right? I know I'm making it blindingly obvious, okay? But now look. Blessed are the, we used to have a game show in England called Blankety Blank. So I'm going to play Blankety Blank with you. Blessed are the blank, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we know the answer to that question. We know who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. It belongs to who? Those who repent. Therefore, immediately we know that the expression poor in spirit, is synonymous with people who repent. This is what repentance looks like. The people who are repenters are the people who are poor in spirit. And so we'll talk about that for a moment, because we can't simply say, well, poor in spirit therefore means repenting, and repenting means poor in spirit, because the difference in these words, as we're going to see right the way through this section, The difference in these words is so important. And this is why Jesus carefully constructs it for us without taking a quote from the Old Testament, but puts the Old Testament theology into these unique words. The concept of the poor and needy is a central theme in the entire book of Isaiah. I would love to show you lots of different passages, but I fear that we're going to be going so slowly through this already that I will simply refer you to the two years of sermons we did in Isaiah on our website. But suffice to say this, that Isaiah has a theology of those who are poor and needy. 
Now, when you see the word poor, as we mentioned last time, those who have a social gospel, which of course is no gospel at all, see the word poor and go, aha, socialism, communism, Jesus was a communist. And and they just go running down that alleyway with, with complete abandonment. But the idea of what it means to be poor is something that Isaiah paints for us in a, in, a, in a really precise way. You aren't poor in biblical terms because you earn less in wages than your neighbor. If your neighbor lives in a, in a really nice, you know, multi-million dollar mansion and, you know, they are how, you know, they, they, there they are and they earn an absolute fortune and then you're kind of, you know, living in a shack and, you know, or maybe you live in their garden shed or something and you have a very low income and, you know, you're struggling to pay your bills, you're struggling to make ends meet. That's not what the Bible means by poor. We're not comparing wages. In, in a practical and financial sense, poor would be speaking of somebody who suffers some kind of harm so now that they're no longer able to be able to work to earn whatever their income was before. That's what poor means. You know, you're a butcher and you earn good money amongst your Jewish community and then you, you, you fall off your horse and you break your arm and you can't chop the meat anymore. Now you're poor and needy. But what Isaiah does with that expression is he weaves it into a spiritual context. If you are a butcher and you break your arm and now you can't chop your meat, you can't do your work, now you're struggling for an income, you don't know what to do, you are utterly reliant upon others. You can't chop that meat anymore. So somebody else has got to do it for you. You need people to help out. You need to show them how to do things. You need assistance. You are now reliant. That is what Paul means in a spiritual sense. It is somebody who recognizes their inability. They can't just go through life and accomplish and do what they want to do. They realize that they are unable and they are weak and they are needing of assistance, and that they are incapable. And Isaiah takes that concept of being poor and needy in a spiritual sense, and it is it is there throughout the book of Isaiah. Right there in the early chapters, he speaks of these people who have lofty eyes. Oh, they look like they are eyes above everybody else. I am so great and so grand and so wonderful. And let me look down on you peasants. And then they have this, this, this self-esteem that they just, look at me, look how wonderful I am. And God condemns them for it. And then after the woes of Isaiah 5, where this loftiness is condemned, these haughty, lifted up eyes are condemned, we get to Isaiah 6. And what does Isaiah see? He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He is the only one who rightfully has that place. And Isaiah, who sees him, realizes his own state. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And that theme runs right the way. Right the way through Isaiah. 
And, and as Isaiah develops that theme, one of the most amazing things in the entire book of Isaiah is this. That we go from the Lord, majestic, high and lifted up upon his throne, and then we come to a series of songs about a servant. A servant who is going to suffer. And so different is this servant, seemingly, from the Messiah and from the King and from the ruler and from the Lord, that many would think, well, this must be somebody different. And then in the final servant song, we're told this, Behold my servant, he is high and lifted up. And it is the one who is high and lifted up who brings himself low. It's the one who is high and lifted up who suffers not for his sin, but for the sake of others. In other words, the one who is high and lifted up brings himself low. Those who are low must resist the temptation to lift themselves up. And thus we have that common biblical concept that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's the context of the Old Testament when you come here. So what does a person who repents look like? Above all else, a person who is repentant is somebody who is poor in spirit. Somebody who is, is the opposite of pride. Somebody who has, and this is really the crucial point, a correct self-evaluation, particularly in contrast to God. We know who we are. Now friends, we live in a society where it seems like about 90% of this world, certainly the Western world, whether they call themselves Christians or even if they are Christians, have embraced the false religion of psychology. And according to the false religion of psychology, the solution to your low, to your problems, well, the, the problem you have ultimately is your low self-esteem. And you need to feel better about yourself. You need to, you need to pat yourself on the back and surround yourselves with other people who pat you on the back. And if someone criticizes you, oh my goodness, that's toxic. Let's get rid of that person. And let's just, let's have, just have good vibes. And let's feel good about ourselves. And let's, let's just you know, remind ourselves how wonderful we are. And we'll get up in the morning and we'll look in the mirror. You got this, tiger! Or whatever animal you have and want, want to be. And, and there is this kind of self-building where we, we say, you know what? You've been downtrodden too long. It's time that you get up. Rise up. Come on, we got this. You're strong. No, really you are. You don't feel strong, but you're strong. You can do this. You can do it. You can. And then you become like your own little cheerleader. And you have your proverbial pom-poms. And you're, you know, giving you all this. You can do it. But as Christians, we must reject that false doctrine. Because when you stand in the presence of God, you realize that you are somebody of unclean lips, of unclean thoughts, 
of unclean heart, of unclean hands. And not only are you unholy and unworthy, you're incapable. That breath you just took was because God gave it to you as a gift. And he is sovereign. He is the potter. You are the clay. You don't get to argue. You don't get to fight. You don't get to cajole. You don't get to manipulate. When he says no more breaths, there will be no more breaths. Because he is sovereign. And you would go about our lives under the illusion of self-sovereignty that we can do as we wish and choose what we want and live how we like. And we are living under an illusion because there is a sovereign God who says yay or nay to every single choice that we might try to make. He is God and we are not. And so, when we are somebody who recognizes the height and the majesty and the greatness of God, our lowliness, our unworthiness, and our inability, then we realize that our problem is not low self-esteem. Our problem is high self-esteem. That's our problem. A friend of mine used to say many years ago, probably about whew, 25 years ago now, he told me this, I've never forgotten it. He says, I think I've got, he says, I know the answer to low self-esteem. I said, what's that? He said, no self-esteem. That's the answer to low self-esteem, no self-esteem. We think too much of ourselves. And, and the irony is, that in psychological terms, even the concept of low self-esteem is exposing the prideful nature within us. How dare people treat me this way? When we say, oh, I'm not worthy of this, what we really mean is, that's not fair. So what we really mean is, I am worthy of it. I'm, I, I, you know, I should be worth so much more than this. The reality is, is that we need to find our place in light of who God is. And I need to unpack that for a little, us for a little bit. And Jesus is going to unpack it for us a lot more. But this is our first statement. This is our foundational statement. And everything else leads from this statement. So we need to really understand this. And I want us to, to see how this works out practically. Because this is repentance, right? Repentance is equal to being poor in spirit. Why is that the case? Because when you're poor in spirit, you acknowledge that you don't know the right way. When you're poor in spirit, you acknowledge you don't know how to live. You don't know what's right and wrong. You don't know what you should and shouldn't do. When you're poor in spirit, you acknowledge that your heart is deceitful and wicked. And that you will seek after your own pleasures. You will create your own rights and your own wrongs. 
And you have a tendency to usurp the role of God. When you're poor in spirit, you're aware of the pride and the selfishness that rests within you. And so you get on your knees. And you turn from your ways, your plans, your desires. Friends, what I'm defining for you here is not merely someone who is poor in spirit. It's not merely someone who's repentant. It's someone who's a Christian. I don't care how much you read your Bible. I don't care how good your church attendance is. I don't care how well you score in a Bible trivia quiz or a theology exam. A Christian is somebody who has a place in God's kingdom because they are poor in spirit and they have said, enough of my ways, enough of my rule, enough of my sovereignty, enough of my ideas, my desires, my wants, my goals, my everything, enough. I'm leaving it behind and I'm going to go to Christ and he will tell me how to live, what to want, what to give, what to do, how to live my life, how to function, how to think. And every time I have an idea, a thought, a desire, a motive that is in contrary, in contrast, is contrary to his word, I will cast it aside. Because I am his and his alone forevermore. Friends, that's what it means to be poor in spirit, to be repentant and to be a Christian. And the truth and the reality is, <coughs> is that that person is the only kind of person who has a place in the kingdom of heaven. That's it. And there are churches up and down this land that have people in them who have never done this. Now, none of us have ever done it perfectly. <laughs> when I first repented of my sin, man, I think I knew about 0.5% of the sins that I'm aware of now. Some of you are single. If you ever get married, you're going to find out a whole bunch more. <laughs> <laughs> That's what spouses are for. <laughs> they, they help us see our sin, even when they don't tell us. <laughs> I never knew how selfish I was till I got married. True story. But the reality is, is that none of us do it perfectly. None of our repentance is full and complete. But there has to be that desire and that intent and that letting go and not clinging on and how do we know if that was true because we continue to live in it that's what John was speaking about when he spoke about the type of fruit that was fitting for repentance how do you know if someone is repentant because there's fruit that comes with repentance how do you know if that tree in your garden is an apple tree or an orange tree? You just wait for the fruit to grow and then you have a look. You just have a look. And people who are repentant have repentant fruit. 
And I don't want any of us to be under the illusion that because we go to a Bible teaching church, that we automatically qualify for the kingdom of heaven. I don't want any of us to presume that because we were raised in a Christian home, we automatically go to the kingdom of heaven. I don't want any of us to presume that because we responded to an altar call, or we said a prayer, or we followed some sort of you know, ritualistic response to hearing the gospel, that we're going to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. I don't want you to think that. Because if you think that, you're in the same situation as the Pharisees, which is, you're in the category of people that all have a share of the kingdom to come. And I don't give two hoots whether that category is Jews, people raised in Christian homes, people who go to churches, people who read the Bible, people who who memorize some sort of catechism, or whatever it is. I don't care what that category is. You don't get to be in the kingdom of heaven because you fit into some category, unless that category is the repentant who are poor in spirit. That's it. Man, I want to know more about this, don't you? Well, it's a good job Jesus goes on and tells us more. And we'll do that in future weeks. But today I simply want to say this. We can't be filled until we are empty. The rich young ruler is going to be an illustration of this later on. He comes to Jesus and Jesus says... He says, he says, you know, hey teacher, I've done all of these things, I've kept the commandments, what do I have to do to be in the kingdom? He said, give away all your money. And because he was rich, he went away very sad. That isn't a verse that says you have to give all your money away. It's a verse that says you don't get to cling on to certain things and be repentant. You know, whenever we, we've mentioned it a few times, when we drive, drive into church down 6th Street, we go past First Christian Church of Burbank, the church that was presumably one of the first that was ever here. And they have the LGBT flag outside and the transgender banner outside. And it makes me angry. Because what they're doing is what the Pharisees did. They're saying... You can have a place in the kingdom without repenting. We welcome you as you are. And if you think that's who you are, that's okay. And I find that heartbreaking. Because they're being lied to and they're being taken on a direct route to hell. Why? Because we don't get to choose our own rights and wrongs. We don't get to choose what is good and evil. We have to be the ones who are poor in spirit and we don't get to cling on to our favorite sin. We don't say, you know what, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to go to to church and worship with these people, but I'm going to do this as a sort of gay Christian. There's no such thing. You, you, You have to let go. Does that mean that your desires are going to change overnight? No, it doesn't necessarily. But it means that you say, that life is not my life anymore. 
I'm letting go, I'm emptying myself of everything. Now I know for most of us, if we don't struggle with that sin, then that's an easy example for us to understand the concept. But every single one of us has sins that we don't want to let go of. We need to empty ourselves. Our desires, our plans, our goals, our wants, everything that is of us, it just needs to go. Why? Because we're poor in spirit. We're nothing before Almighty God, you know? I mean, if you're the CEO of some multinational corporation that that is responsible for billions of dollars worth of investment, and your three-year-old child walks into the meeting and says, sell that, you're not going to say, well, that's a smart smart idea. I think think my three-year-old might have an idea here. How did you come up with such a concept? Oh, you're so clever, so smart. No, 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 no. Do you see how much bigger the gap is between us and God? That we would come before God and say, hey God, do it this way. We do it in our prayers all the time. God is so gracious, isn't he? He doesn't even tell us not to. He says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. (laughs) And Lord knows what he makes of half of our suggestions. (laughs) The things that we say. Lord, I think it would be really good if you do this. Of course, we don't say it like that. We say, Lord, we just pray that you would maybe do this, kind of offering this suggestion. That's why when we pray, we've always got to pray, your will be done. Because we have to be poor in spirit and recognize that our ideas are, generally speaking, fairly dumb. We have nothing to offer God. He doesn't get better because of us. We don't contribute anything to this covenant relationship other than our sin that he needs to deal with. And so my main point this morning, the the passion of my heart, is that every single one of us here today, and every person who listens listens to this in the years to come, my prayer above all else is this. Have you repented? And are you proving that by showing fruits of repentance day by day? That's my question to you. Not because I'm mean, not because I'm nasty, but because I love you. And we have to ask ourselves this question. And I don't want any of you, and some of you are so tender-hearted and sweet, I don't want you to say, oh, you know what? I told a lie yesterday, maybe I'm not repentant. Maybe I'm not saved. I'm not asking you to go down that rabbit trail of, you know, second-guessing every single sin. And the problem with these kind of messages is that the sort of people who need to be assured of their salvation are often the ones who are so broken and afflicted by their sin that they're so tender-hearted that they, they constantly say, am I really saved? Am I really saved? And the ones who need to really question whether they're saved are often the ones that never ask the question. I guess if we just all keep asking ourselves the question, then we're all safe.
If we have repented in a genuine and true way, we have emptied ourselves, we have handed over our lives to God, and we have turned to Him, then we will bear fruit of repentance. And then we will be those who have the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone listening to this at any point in time who has not yet repented, has not emptied of themselves, have not recognized the poverty of their spirit, have not recognized the emptiness and how little they have in and of themselves, if they have not repented of self-reliance, self-profession, self-exaltation, Lord, would you graciously, even now, open their eyes and lead them to repentance? May they mourn over their sin, And may they trust in you and in you alone. And Father, for those of us for whom repentance is real, for those who see this fruit, though we struggle and we stumble and we make mistakes, we do see the fruit of repentance in our lives. Father, would this message today just press upon us again the glory of your gospel, the good news that you offer. And may we be bold in calling people to repentance because without repentance they will not see the poverty of their spirit and they will have no place in your kingdom. We ask all this, Lord, that through salvation you will be glorified. Amen.